This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 25, the election of 1960, the close and controversial presidential race between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. In 1960, the two presidential candidates spent Election Day on opposite coasts. Nixon, the Republican nominee, voted in his hometown of Whittier, California. At 5 p.m., he joined his wife, Pat, and a large group of supporters at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Across the country, Democratic hopeful JFK voted in Boston, then flew to the Kennedy family compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Knowing the race would be close, Both men settled in for a long night, but neither could have anticipated that the evening would stretch into days of heated controversy. As the night progressed, the vote was still too close to call. Finally, a little after 7 a.m. the next morning, Kennedy was declared the winner. But after a final tally revealed that Kennedy had won the popular vote by just 0.2%, The integrity of the contest came into question. Was it just a close vote? Or had the Democrats stolen the election? Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. A number of factors contributed to a tense socio-political climate in the U.S. in 1960. The Cold War had been raging for a decade and a half. International tensions hit a fever pitch in 1959 when Fidel Castro seized power in Cuba. Middle-class families were building bomb shelters. 
Schools were teaching students how to duck and cover. And then there was civil rights. The Civil Rights Act had been passed in 1957, but it did little to end discrimination. The sexual revolution had just begun, and in 1960, the FDA approved the first birth control pill. The only thing certain was that times were changing. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, affectionately known as Ike, had been a steady and reassuring presence in Americans' lives. But after two terms in office, he would have to step aside, leaving the American people with one more worry. Who would fill Ike's shoes? Two men felt they were up to the task, Richard Milhouse Nixon and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yet despite their shared goal, the two men came from completely different backgrounds. The Kennedys were an extremely wealthy, politically powerful East Coast family. One of nine children, John grew up Catholic and attended Ivy League universities. His domineering father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., groomed John from a young age for a life of public service. And nobody said no to Joe Sr., not even his own children. Joseph Kennedy was a wealthy, powerful, and arrogant man. He counted politicians, mobsters, and movie stars among his friends. He flaunted his many extramarital affairs and was rumored to have manipulated the stock market for his own benefit. Joe was a man who got what he wanted, and what he wanted was power. He knew one way to get it was to secure his handsome son a high-level position in politics. Nixon, on the other hand, was raised by Quaker parents in Southern California, where his father owned a grocery store. Money was tight, and nothing came easily. But the exceptionally bright young Nixon worked his way through local Whittier College, and then went on to earn a scholarship to Duke University Law School. Nobody pushed Nixon towards politics. He was self-made in every way. Their contrasting backgrounds began to converge more and more as they became adults. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, both men volunteered to serve their country in World War II. Plagued by various medical issues his whole life, Kennedy's chronic back pain had disqualified him from Army Officer Candidate School in 1940. But determined to serve, he pursued other options— In 1941, with the help of an influential family friend, he was able to join the U.S. Naval Reserve, where he eventually became a Navy officer. In August 1943, a Japanese destroyer sunk the torpedo patrol boat he commanded in the Southwest Pacific. Over the course of six days, Kennedy helped save and secure the rescue of 11 men in his command. His bravery and leadership earned him the Navy and Marine Corps Medal and made him a war hero at just 25 years of age. Around the same time, in 1942, Nixon was working for the federal government in Washington, D.C. While he could have used his status as a public servant to avoid military service, Nixon chose to volunteer. He was proud to serve, rising to the rank of lieutenant commander before leaving the Navy in 1946. After the war, the two young men dedicated their lives to politics and began a cordial but uneasy relationship. Both served in the U.S. House of Representatives, then as senators. 
By the end of the 1950s, Kennedy was a popular and well-respected senator for the state of Massachusetts, while Nixon served as an active and engaged vice president under Dwight D. Eisenhower. Both presidential hopefuls had something to prove to themselves and the world. JFK had a need to please his father and step out from his shadow. Nixon, who disdained anyone raised in privilege, was driven to prove his own superiority and worth. In late 1959, Richard Nixon was a shoo-in for the 1960 Republican nomination. When he was just 46 years old, he had a mature manner and eight years of experience as vice president. Nixon selected former Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. as his running mate and easily secured his party's support. Kennedy, on the other hand, had his work cut out for him. Critics expressed concern that at 42 years old, he was much too young and inexperienced for the presidency. Many Americans were also uncomfortable with the idea of a Catholic president, fearing JFK might be compromised by a loyalty to the Vatican. And some Democrats simply had trouble accepting a roguishly handsome, exorbitantly wealthy candidate as a sincere representative of the people. Knowing he was an underdog, Kennedy entered the race for his party's nomination fiercely determined to prove his doubters wrong. With almost limitless financial support from his father, JFK traveled all across the country giving speeches and meeting and charming local Democrats. And money wasn't the only thing Joe supplied. He had many political allies whom he courted, and some say bargained with, to benefit his son's campaign. Meanwhile, JFK selected his younger brother, Bobby, as his campaign manager. Bobby, a rising political star himself, had served as an aide to candidate Adlai Stevenson during the 1956 election and as a delegate at that year's Democratic National Convention. He was an ideal choice for the role. And through grit, hard work, and perseverance, the same kind he demonstrated in World War II and as a senator, JFK not only held his ground, but became a legitimate contender. By July 1960, many expected it would take multiple ballots at the Democratic Convention to select a nominee. Senate Majority Leader Lyndon B. Johnson was considered a favorite for the nomination. But on the first ballot, JFK defeated Johnson and all of his other competitors. He would represent his party in the fight for the presidency. What happened next was perhaps the first scandal of the 1960 election. Throughout his primary campaign, Kennedy never committed to a running mate. It's rumored that he dangled the possibility before several candidates in order to curry political favor. Many close to the campaign assumed he would eventually settle on Missouri Senator Stuart Symington. But instead, he decided on Lyndon B. Johnson. LBJ was a brash, outspoken Texan. In his zeal to defeat Kennedy in the primaries and secure the nomination for himself, he had revealed confidential information about JFK's struggle with Addison's disease and also accused Joe Kennedy of harboring pro-Nazi sympathies in the 1930s. Bobby Kennedy, who was running his brother's campaign, despised Johnson. He guided his brother towards other potential running mates. But Jack Kennedy knew in his heart of hearts that in order to win the presidency, he needed to take the South. 
and Lyndon B. Johnson was the surest way to make that happen. So against his brother's advice, he extended the offer. Bobby considered this a major betrayal. He was so upset that he went behind his brother's back and asked Johnson to refuse the offer. It was rumored that Johnson was ambivalent about accepting the role until Bobby's visit. But the opportunity to defy the younger Kennedy and jab him while he was down was one of the reasons LBJ ultimately accepted. With the nominations secure and running mates selected, the 1960 presidential race was on. Two young war heroes from opposite backgrounds were about to fight it out for the honor of leading their country. Up next, we'll discuss the events that led up to one of the closest and most controversial presidential election outcomes in U.S. history. Now, back to the story. By August of 1960... 47-year-old Richard Nixon had easily secured the Republican nomination for president. Meanwhile, his opponent, 43-year-old John F. Kennedy, had fought hard to win the Democratic nomination. But the real battle was just about to begin. When it came to their respective political platforms, Nixon and Kennedy had two major things in common. Both despised communism and supported civil rights. But that's where their similarities came to an end. Kennedy was socially progressive, while Nixon was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. Rather than shy away from the issue of his age, Kennedy promoted himself as a progressive leader for the 1960s. He espoused military preparedness, progressive labor policy, and aid for the elderly. Although he was only four years older than his opponent, Nixon ran on the slogan, Peace, Experience, Prosperity. He emphasized his time as vice president, his familiarity with foreign nations, and his commitment to individual rights. Some would say that Kennedy ran a superior campaign. Others would claim that Nixon was dogged by bad luck. Whatever the reason, despite a comparable amount of effort, Nixon ran into vastly more obstacles on the campaign trail, many of which were comically unfortunate. One famous incident involved then-President Eisenhower. Nixon was relying heavily on his experience as vice president to win votes. Yet in August 1960, when a reporter asked Eisenhower to give an example of Nixon's contributions, Ike chuckled and joked, If you give me a week, I might think of one. While it was well known that Eisenhower was somewhat lukewarm about his vice president, he had endorsed him formally and wanted the Republican nominee to prevail. Nixon's advisors were flabbergasted by the comment. In another instance at the Republican National Convention, Nixon pledged to visit all 50 states during his campaign. However, after he struck his knee against a car door while campaigning in North Carolina, the injury became infected and he was hospitalized for two weeks. When he was finally released, he insisted on keeping his promise to the voters, which means he wasted valuable time trotting around to non-swing states while Kennedy was focused on the key areas. Another significant issue beyond Nixon's control was the behavior of his running mate. Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. ran a clumsy and lethargic campaign full of missteps. Among them was a pledge, not approved by Nixon, that as president, Nixon would appoint a black American to his cabinet. 
Many voters saw the platitude as dismissive of the scope and complexity of civil rights issues and a clumsy attempt to win over black voters. Meanwhile, Kennedy's decision to choose Lyndon B. Johnson as his running mate was paying off spectacularly. Johnson campaigned enthusiastically and adapted to challenges expertly. He was instrumental in securing several southern states that had been skeptical of Kennedy, in particular Johnson's home state of Texas. And while Kennedy's critics saw him as a dilettante and less serious than Nixon, a growing number of Americans found him intelligent, charming, and affable. Kennedy was learning to think on his feet. When he spoke to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, he diffused the question of his religion by addressing it directly. He declared, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president, who also happens to be a Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters, and the church does not speak for me. But for all his stumbles on the campaign trail, the biggest stroke of bad luck for Nixon was yet to come. There were four debates preceding the 1960 general election, and these would be the first ever broadcast on national television. Americans embraced the opportunity to see and hear the candidates up close and learn more about their opinions. An estimated 70 million viewers tuned into the first debate. Tens of millions more learned about the broadcast from friends, family members, and the later media coverage. Nixon treated the first debate, which took place in Chicago, as just another campaign appearance. Anxious to maximize his time, he insisted on campaigning until just a few hours before the event. Not having fully recovered from his hospital stay, he re-injured his knee as he entered the television station. The pain was excruciating, but he refused to call off the debate. He also refused to wear the stage makeup that was offered to him. Nixon battled a heavy five o'clock shadow, often shaving twice a day. At the last minute, he relented and let his aides apply a drugstore makeup to cover the problem. But he probably should have let the professionals handle the job. He looked pale and tired on camera, and the harsh studio lights made him sweat profusely. He looked so bad that his own mother called him afterwards to ask if he was okay. Kennedy, by contrast, truly grasped the importance of the event. He flew to Chicago days early to meet with the producer and director of the telecast. He asked questions about not only the debate rules, but the nuances of television, including where and how to stand. He rested and prepared, and it paid off. JFK appeared relaxed, confident, and handsome as ever. After his disastrous performance, Nixon finally stepped it up. For the next televised debate, he regained some weight, wore professionally applied stage makeup, and tried to present himself more confidently. The majority of pundits agreed that while Kennedy won the first debate, Nixon won the second and third. The fourth debate was considered a draw. But unfortunately for Nixon, after his mediocre performance in the first debate, nearly 20 million fewer people tuned in for the later ones. The awkward, sweating image of Nixon was permanently seared into their memories. To understand just how close the contest actually was, it's helpful to look at the Gallup polls. By late August 1960, 
they indicated that Nixon and Kennedy were neck and neck. Not surprisingly, Kennedy took a three-point lead in October after the historic debates. But Nixon came back, and by early November, Kennedy's lead was down to one percentage point. Going into Election Day, it truly was anyone's race. Computers were an exciting new technology in 1960, and all three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, were eager to show theirs off. On election night, they used the pinpoint accuracy of their new machines to forecast the outcome, announcing their predictions throughout the night. Unfortunately, their calculations were less reliable than they'd hoped. At 7.35 p.m. Eastern Time, Nixon was on top of the world when the CBS computer predicted he would win in a landslide. ABC's machine followed suit predicting a Nixon win. But by 9.40, the CBS computer had evidently changed its mind, so much so that the network announced Kennedy the likely winner. An hour later, CBS went even further and declared that a Kennedy victory was definite. As the evening wore on, NBC's computer predicted a narrow win for Kennedy. And just before midnight, ABC followed suit and declared, live and on the air, that Kennedy would win. With all three networks reporting a win for their side, the mood at the Kennedy compound was jubilant. The New York Times jumped on the Kennedy bandwagon and at 3.18 a.m. on November 9th went to press with the banner, Kennedy Elected President. As the new edition of the paper hit the street, Nixon went on television to announce that if the current voting trends continued, Kennedy would be the winner. But he did not formally concede. He knew it was still too close to call. And he was right. In the early morning hours of November 9th, Kennedy's popular vote lead began to shrink. Nixon took Ohio, which had been favored to go to Kennedy. Then, the New York Times Chicago correspondent, who had previously reported a Kennedy win in Illinois, called to admit he may have jumped the gun. Nixon was gaining traction, and with several precincts still out, he just couldn't be sure. Soon, even pundits who accepted California Governor Pat Brown's prediction that Kennedy would take the progressive Golden State were forced to reconsider. And at 4.47 a.m., the New York Times stopped the presses and released an extra edition with the revised, more ambivalent headline that Kennedy was the apparent victor. The Times was gambling that they'd place the right bet, and soon the electoral votes would confirm it. Illinois' 27 votes landed in the Kennedy column, and at 7.19 a.m. Eastern Time, it was reported that he won California giving him just enough electoral votes for the win. He still had to wait for a formal concession from Nixon, but it looked like the race was finally over. Nobody knew it at the time, but after the absentee ballots were counted, California's 32 electoral votes would actually go to Nixon. Nonetheless, Kennedy did defeat Nixon in the Electoral College by a margin of 303 to 219. But in the popular vote, Kennedy won by only 112,827 votes out of almost 69 million cast, a margin of just 0.17%. Nixon accepted his loss and formally conceded the election. But not everyone was ready to give up. 
Up next, the election results create conflict and controversy for both parties. Now, back to the story. On the morning of November 9, 1960, Richard Nixon conceded the presidential race to John F. Kennedy. But many Republicans were troubled by how close the race was in terms of popular votes. Nixon had lost Texas by only 46,000 votes and Illinois by just 9,000. If Nixon had carried both these states, he would have won the Electoral College and the presidency. But Republicans couldn't believe or accept the results. They felt if there was ever a potential cause of voter fraud, this was it. Nixon, however, was in no mood to dispute the outcome. Exhausted from the long campaign, he took his family and a few trusted aides to Key Biscayne, Florida. He'd leave the speculation to those in Washington, which was no problem for the Republicans. They kept arguing that the election had been compromised. Senators Barry Goldwater and Everett Dirksen even claimed that Chicago Mayor Richard Daley had stolen the election for Kennedy. But Washington insiders crying wolf wasn't enough. Nixon himself needed to dispute the results. So, hoping to spur a change of heart, his campaign manager, Leonard Wood Hall, along with RNC chairman and Senator Thruston Morton, flew to Key Biscayne. Nixon considered his options. He trusted his advisors, but he also believed and was often quoted saying that the country could not afford the agony of a constitutional crisis and he would not be party to creating one. More than anything, Nixon had been in politics long enough to know when to hold him and when to fold him. He knew that looking like a sore loser would be more damaging than riding out a Kennedy presidency. On Friday, November 11th, he announced that he accepted the results. John F. Kennedy was the president-elect. Nixon's supporters and critics praised him for his dignity. But a small minority refused to accept his decision. They launched investigations in several states to confirm the results. Meanwhile, Democrats were conflicted. They were thrilled to celebrate a victory, yet puzzled that Nixon had won so many popular votes and wary of the Republican reaction. But they were more worried about the problems a challenge could cause in the presidential transition than they were about the actual outcome. On November 9th, key members of the Kennedy campaign met to discuss the situation. While they projected confidence, the Kennedy camp was anxious to stamp out any disputes immediately. Joseph Kennedy Sr. stepped in and, through his powerful contacts, arranged a meeting with Nixon himself. The Kennedys felt that bringing the two rivals together would publicly reinforce Nixon's acceptance of the election results. So, on November 14th, President-elect Kennedy flew to Florida to meet Nixon. Nixon reiterated that he was not interested in challenging the results. He accepted that 1960 wasn't his year and shifted all of his energy towards the future. It was a shrewd decision, but he may have been getting ahead of himself. The investigations into the election didn't find any evidence of fraud in most of the states, but they did find significant discrepancies in Texas. Fannin County, Texas, had only 4,895 registered voters on Election Day. Yet somehow, 6,138 votes were cast, with 75% going to Kennedy. 
And in one Angelina County precinct where only 86 people voted, over 200 votes were counted, with 187 for Kennedy, 24 for Nixon. Fraud was also uncovered in Illinois, but within both parties. Clearly, this was a story that warranted further investigation. Earl Mazo, the Washington correspondent for the New York Herald Tribune, launched his own inquiry. He traveled to Chicago, obtained lists of voters in precincts that seemed suspicious, and began inspecting them personally. What he claimed to have uncovered was an extensive web of fraud. In one case, he found a cemetery where the names on the tombstones matched the list of Kennedy voters. At the urging of Chicago Democrats, Mazo also checked on Republican areas downstate and found suspicious tallies in favor of Nixon as well. With his sights set on blowing the lid off the disputed election and perhaps earning a Pulitzer in the process, Earl Mazo began writing furiously. By mid-December, Earl Mazo had published four parts of his expose on voter fraud. The stories were reprinted in newspapers nationwide. While working on his fifth installment, Mazo received an unexpected phone call summoning him to Vice President Nixon's office at the Capitol. To Mazo's shock, Nixon demanded he kill the story. Mazo was stunned and may have even considered it, but ultimately his integrity as a journalist forced him to refuse. He felt strongly that his expose could help overturn the election results, so he couldn't understand why Nixon was so adamantly opposed to it. But determined to put the issue to rest, Nixon called Mazo's employers at the New York Herald Tribune. He insisted that the series was damaging the country by undermining America's confidence in its government. Mazo's editors honored Nixon's wishes and killed the series. Mazo resented their decision and speculated about the influence his series could have had for the rest of his life. He was quoted saying he thought Nixon had been a goddamn fool. On January 20th, 1961, John F. Kennedy was inaugurated as the 35th President of the United States, with Lyndon B. Johnson as his Vice President. Looking back on the two candidates' legacies, the controversy of the 1960 election is often forgotten. But at the time, it nearly brought national politics to a halt. Was the handsome, likable JFK actually a devious crook? Or was he a clueless pawn whose powerful father pulled strings to secure his win? Did Nixon accept the results to bolster his public image and uphold the people's faith in the democratic process? Or was he suppressing exposure of his own dirty tricks? Whatever took place, nobody disputes that fraud occurred. But the scope and ultimate impact remain in question. Many believe that, with or without Kennedy's knowledge and participation, the Democrats flat-out stole the election, and a formal investigation would have reversed the results. Others are confident that, while there may have been fraud, it wasn't significant enough to shift the outcome. But no one can deny that the presidential race of 1960 was one of the most riveting and scandalous in U.S. history. After his defeat, Richard Nixon focused on the future. Outwardly, he always stood by his magnanimous acceptance of the results, an attitude that served him well and increased his likability with the American public. 
1968, Nixon made another run for the White House. With Spiro Agnew as his running mate, he went up against then-Vice President Hubert Humphrey. The campaign was grueling, but Nixon had spent eight years preparing. And on November 5, 1968, in what was again an extremely close race, Nixon finally prevailed. He won 301 electoral votes to Humphrey's 191, but ironically won the popular vote by less than 1%. In 1972, President Nixon was again embroiled in a campaign-related scandal when his staff was linked to a break-in at the DNC headquarters. The Watergate scandal destroyed Nixon's presidency and his credibility. It also reinforced the theory that Nixon was a crook and that a thorough investigation into the 1960 election would have embarrassed or even incriminated him. Today, the election scandal of 1960 is largely overshadowed by Kennedy's legacy, or it's used as a comparative example for elections tinged with similar discrepancies. This happened in 2000, when Democratic nominee Al Gore lost the election to Republican George W. Bush in the third closest election of modern times. While it bore numerous similarities to 1960, there was one difference. The loser, Al Gore, wasn't just close to winning the popular vote, he won the popular vote. And yet, like Nixon, he didn't take the Electoral College. Another aspect of the election that remains relevant today is the impact of technology. In 1960, there were concerns that TV news and computer algorithms had too much influence on how the public perceived the election all of which sparked an overwhelming level of mistrust and confusion as the results rolled in. This same issue reared its head in 2016. Virtually every news station was forecasting a Hillary Clinton win, until the results suddenly veered in the opposite direction. Even more recently, the use of an untested app at the Iowa caucuses left TV pundits sitting on their hands for hours as no results came in at all. And this may be the biggest lesson from the 1960 election. Perhaps, for once, we should all take a page out of Richard Nixon's book. Instead of sitting glued to the screen on election night, it might be wiser to go to bed, get some rest, and see where the dust has settled in the morning. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 24, Bud Dwyer, the Pennsylvania state treasurer who, after being convicted of accepting a bribe, took his own life rather than serve prison time. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Alex Sloan, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher 
and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.